You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Oftentimes, a lot of our thinking, our theology of Jesus begins at the birth of Christ. And what we oftentimes fail to appreciate or to embrace is that he was in the beginning with God. Before Jesus ever became a baby in a manger, he was a part of the Godhead. And what you see in in the video is really trying to depict is that Jesus was very much active, uh, present uh, in the Old Testament. Um, And oftentimes we kind of lose sight of that or we don't appreciate or really understand the fullness of that. And that's one of the just incredible things with that video is it's really beginning to kind of talk about that pre-incarnate Christ, uh, that he was in the beginning with God, that he had a purpose and he was manifesting himself even then. The fullness of that manifestation came uh, in the incarnation when God took on flesh and became a human being um, and he walked among us uh, as a man. But he was very much active and very much among us um, even before then. Last Sunday, we started talking about the concept of grace especially as it kind of relates to the way Jesus kind of understood and uh, applied grace in the lives of people he encountered during his earthly ministry. And what we discovered as we looked at the lives of people in the Bible and what I think many of us can attest to in our own personal walk and journey with Christ is that grace is what we most crave, it's what we most desire when our sin, when our guilt is exposed. If you've ever been caught by your parents, your spouse, your boss doing something you clearly should not have been doing, one of those things that you crave or you desire or seek most in that situation is grace because your guilt, your sin has been exposed. This grace in part is really what made Jesus so attractive, so appealing, so beautiful to people who were broken, whose lives were very messy, who were lost because Jesus would respond in extremely gracious ways that often left people shockingly surprised. And we define grace as that unearned, unmerited, undeserved, full-on favor of God. Grace is, is when someone is for you when they have every reason and right to be against you. Grace is, I made the mistake, but someone else willingly took the punishment And this idea of grace, the way that Jesus lived and applied that grace to people's lives, especially those who were broken and hurting and lost, is what made him so appealing, so attractive, so beautiful. It's why people were comfortable to be around Jesus. It's why they loved being around Jesus and why Jesus was comfortable with them, why Jesus enjoyed and loved being around them. This is also really what made the first century church, the church in the book of Acts, so beautiful, so appealing, so attractive, and so winsome. 
As a matter of fact, it's the disciple John who walked with Jesus those three and a half years Jesus' ministry was unfolding upon the earth. John was a witness to uh, a lot of what Jesus said and did, and he records this, and, and that's what his gospel there in the New Testament is about. And in John 1.14, John is attempting to kind of describe and to capture the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 14, he says one of the things that really stood out to him about Jesus was here was, here was this God-man who was fully God, fully man, and he was full of grace and full of truth. Jesus, this visible image, Paul says, the visible image of the invisible God embodied the full-on grace and the full-on truth of God. So that when anybody encountered Jesus, regardless of how broken, how lost, how sinful they were, they would discover and they would experience the full-on grace and the full-on truth of God through him. We talked about this last week where in John 8, Jesus encounters the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus tells those who were gathered around her, ready to condemn and stone her to death. And Jesus simply says, those of you who have never sinned, be the first ones to cast the stone. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that they all leave without casting one stone. And Jesus asked the woman where her accusers are. Are there none here that condemn you? And the woman says, no. And Jesus in full on grace replies, neither do I condemn you. And then in full on truth, he says, go now and sin no more. Again, embodying that full on grace, full on truth. And I don't believe this order of grace and truth is coincidental. It's not accidental that, that John puts it in the order he puts it in because I believe in order for us to receive the truth of God, we first have to experience the grace of God. It's the grace of God that prepares our hearts to receive the truth of God. And Jesus first extends to this woman full on grace. I do not condemn you either, and then follows it up with the full-on truth. Go now and sin no more. Oftentimes, we kind of want to do this in the reverse order. We want to hit people with the truth, and then eventually, depending on how they respond to that truth, we may or we may not extend to them grace. Again, I say part of what drew people to Jesus Part of what made Jesus so attractive, so beautiful, so winsome and appealing to people was that Jesus manifested both full-on grace, full-on truth in that order, if not simultaneously. When people's sins and their guilt was exposed, like this woman there in John 8, Jesus understood and he knew that what people needed most wasn't truth, it was grace, then followed by truth. And I believe the same is still true today. The other concept we talked about when it comes to God's grace is that God's grace is relational, that grace can only be experienced in the context of a relationship. There is a sense in which grace is just a word it's a concept until it is embraced, until it is experienced. 
There's no emotion around it. There's no story to tell, no burden to ease, no guilt to remove, no sin to forgive until grace is experienced in the context of a relationship where there is no relationship, where there is no person, there can be no transfer or experience of grace. This is why in part, God had to come down. Why God had to take on flesh and become a human being so that we could experience grace in the person, in the relationship of Jesus Christ. We would have never experienced, known, or embraced grace, felt grace, unless God in the person of Jesus Christ came among us. So again, for grace to be known and experienced, it requires a relationship, a person. Now, one other thing about this full-on grace of God is that at times, it is something that can be very awkward. It can be very disturbing and it can be very unsettling. And where God's grace has the most potential, and you're gonna see this this morning, to be the most awkward, unsettling, and disturbing is not when it's being applied to us, but rather when it's being applied to those who maybe have sinned against us, those that we kind of perceive are our enemies, to those we think do not deserve the grace of God. Take, for example, the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. The story of, uh, begins there in verse one, and it says that Jesus entered Jericho, and he's making his way through the town. There in Jericho was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector in that region and had become very rich. And I talked about this last week, but again, tax collectors were employed by the Roman government to collect taxes from the people to support, to fund the Roman government. And this government, Roman government, the Jewish people despised. So to be a tax collector was bad enough, but to be Jewish as Zacchaeus was, and to be a tax collector, you were considered a traitor on top of all of the other deplorable names you were associated with. Like other tax collectors, it says Zacchaeus was very rich. Now, now tax collectors often became very rich because they would often skim off the top of what they charged you. So uh, again, as I said last week, it, if Jim owed me $100 or owed the Roman government $100, I would charge Jim $125. I would give the $100 to the government and I would pocket the 25. And, and again, this is why they despised the tax collectors. The Jewish people were forced to support a government they did not like. And so oftentimes they were uh, giving money and being forced to do it, knowing that what they were giving, part of this was just going into the pockets of the very people who were assigned to collect it from them. 
And so Zacchaeus, he's not just an ordinary tax collector like Levi or Matthew we talked about last week. Luke says that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, which means he is a supervisor over all of the other tax collectors in that region, which would have made Zacchaeus more despised and more hated than just a regular tax collector. So Zacchaeus is a man who has reached the top of his profession, and in so doing, he also has become one of the most hated, despised men in all of Jericho. So that's a little bit of a background of Zacchaeus. And verse three continues that Zacchaeus is in this crowd, this multitude of people as Jesus is coming by, and he's trying to get a look at Jesus. And he was too short to see over the crowd. So it says he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road for Jesus uh, was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name, very relational, I might add there, very relational. Zacchaeus, come down now. Now, I, I want you to kind of, as best you can, imagine or, or transport yourself into that crowd who are following Jesus. And, and it's a multitude of people, a large, large number of people. And Jesus singles out and he calls by name one of the most despised, hated well-known people in all of Jericho. And he calls Zacchaeus by name and he calls him to come down out of that tree. Now again, you're in this crowd, you know who Zacchaeus is, you hate his guts, you cannot stand the guy, you despise him, you understand that he has probably extorted money from you multiple, multiple times. He's taken more money from you than what was actually owed just to be able to line his own pocket. What do you hope? You're in the crowd. This is your heart, your attitude towards Zacchaeus. What are you hoping as a part of the crowd that's gonna happen in this interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus? Now, I'll be honest, if I'm in that crowd, I'm hoping for a butt whooping, right? Let's be honest. I'm thinking, finally, this guy is gonna get what's coming to him. Jesus, he's calling this man out and he's calling him front and center. And man, I just think Jesus is going to tell this man what a horrible person he is. I'm thinking, I, I'm just waiting because I think Jesus is gonna tell this man he's gonna burn in hell forever. Yes, man, I cannot wait to see this interaction. As a matter of fact, I've got my iPhone out. I'm gonna record the video and I'm gonna upload it to YouTube. So everyone around the world can see Jesus finally put this man in his place. Honestly, this is what the crowd was hoping for. This is what they were expecting. This is what they were wanting. 
Jesus is finally going to confront this scumbag of a thief, and he is going to let him have it, and I get to watch. What does Jesus do? How does the incarnate one, God among us, full on of grace and truth, how does he respond? Verse five continues, I must be a guest in your house today. (laughs) What? Be a guest in his house. Jesus, you need to go and burn his house down. This is what the crowd's thinking. Jesus, obviously you know this man. You called him by name. You know who he is. You know what he does. And and this is your response to him? I mean, really, fine. If you want to go to somebody's house, come to my house. I'm a nice person. I'm good to people. I treat people well. This guy, what are you doing? They're stunned. The, The Bible says they're displeased. Oh, I bet they were. This was a shock to them. This was disturbing. This is unsettling. This is not at all what they expected or what they would have done if they were Jesus. But also, this is not at all what Zacchaeus expected either. He was quite used to how he was dealt with by Jewish people. And Jesus, in his eye, is the Jew of all Jews. The crowd is unpleasantly stunned by what Jesus does here. Again, this is so unfair. It's fine, Jesus, if you want to go to someone's house, but at least go to someone who has the appearance of righteousness. Go to someone, Jesus, who is decent and respectable. And as I said last week, this This is the nature of grace. This is how grace acts. We're good with it as long as it's directed to me. Oh, God's grace, it's so beautiful. It's so refreshing. It's so needed. But man, I despise that grace when it is applied to someone I don't like someone who I disagree with, someone who is my enemy, then the grace of God, that is reckless. God, I'm disappointed in you. How dare you react and respond that way to someone in that situation? Who do you think you are? That is the nature of grace. It is unfair. It is disturbing. It is unsettling. But this is how grace acts. This is how grace responds. This is how grace manifests itself. And grace often acts in unfair ways toward people who don't deserve it. Grace often acts unfairly to people who don't deserve it. Again, the full-on grace of God, again, it's a beautiful thing. It is a thing to behold. It's a thing to marvel at. But there's also an aspect to grace that can be very disturbing, very unsettling, and very unfair. 
to the crowd, to the disciples who are with Jesus as he encounters Zacchaeus. This whole situation is so unsettling, so disturbing, so unfair, so backward. Everything was wrong about this. It would also, I want you to understand, it would also be disturbing, unsettling, and unfair to people who would read this hundreds and hundreds of years later. As they read this story, as they understand the context of this story, as they see Jesus's response, it's not just the crowd then, it's the people, generations after generations coming, who read the same story and have the same thoughts and feelings. Because they really did not understand how grace works. They really did not understand how the kingdom of God operates. And I would say to you this morning, not only did Jesus come to reveal to us who the Father was and is, he also came to reveal to us his kingdom. God has a kingdom and Jesus came to usher that kingdom onto the earth. And it is a kingdom different. The kingdom of God is starkly different from the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus came to help us begin to see God's economy, to begin to see the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of this world. Jesus came for us to understand how God operates in this kingdom, how God sees you and me, how God treats you and me. And so over and over and over, Jesus would do things and he would tell stories and he called them parables in order to help us to understand and to grasp, grasp more and more what the kingdom of God was like. And through these stories, these parables that Jesus would tell, he would try to explain just how upside down, counter-cultural the kingdom of God was to the kingdom of this world. He would talk about a brand new set of ethics. He would talk about a brand new way of seeing things, of seeing people, of seeing and experiencing God. And so with every parable Jesus would tell, there are two things you need to look for in, that, in every parable because it's there. Every parable that Jesus told, there are two things you wanna look for. First, there is someone or something representing God in that story. And secondly, someone or something is representing you and I in that story. So in every parable, you will find God and you will find yourself somewhere in that story. So on one particular occasion, Jesus told a story, a parable about the kingdom of God. Again, he does this because he wants us to see how different, how upside down, how countercultural this kingdom of God is compared to the kingdom of this world. And, and he's there to demonstrate his kingdom, how God sees us. And it's also there to kind of begin to show us how disturbing, how unsettling, how unfair full-on grace can be. In front of another crowd in Matthew 20, beginning in verse one, Jesus says, for the kingdom of God is like a landowner who went out early one morning, and this is about six o'clock in the morning, sunrise, 
and he goes to hire workers for his vineyard. He agrees to pay the normal daily wage and send them out to work. So landowners in Jesus's day, they would often get up very early in the morning. They would go into the public squares where the daily laborers would gather, hoping to be hired for a day's full wage. And usually the landowners would hire everybody that they needed right then and there for the whole day all at once. Now, again, the primary concern of the landowner was we've got a job we need to get done. It was not about the workers being hired. It's I've got a job that needs to be completed. The number one priority of the landowner was he wanted to hire enough men to get the job finished, not the men who did the work. The laborers knew what the landowner was willing to pay. They would agree to go and do what he wanted done, and then they would go uh, into his field and begin working. In verse three, Jesus continues the story. He says, so, you know, early in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, he hires the first wave of workers. Verse three says at nine o'clock, he kind of goes in and he hires a second wave of workers. So he's passing through the marketplace and saw some more people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. Now, the first workers, I'm going to pay you a full day's wage, okay? Second group, he just says, I'm going to pay you what is right, what is fair, at noon, okay, so he does it six in the morning, nine, at noon, again, at three o'clock, he did the same thing. So six o'clock, nine o'clock, noon, three o'clock. Verse six, at five o'clock, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. And you gotta understand here, by this time, five o'clock at night, okay, they've got like an hour of daylight left. And he asked them, why haven't you been working today? And they said, no one hired us. Landowner told them, go out and join the others in my vineyard. Now, one of the things that, that's very interesting about parables is that oftentimes when Jesus was telling a story, uh, he would always take the story to extremes. Okay, so he would start a story, and as he's telling the story, it just builds and builds and increases and increases in the extremeness of what he's saying. It was one of the ways he would hook his listeners. He would take the storyline to such extremes that those who are listening, I mean, they would just hang on every word, and they're trying to imagine, where in the world is he going with this? And he was a great storyteller. And nobody else would do this. This was kind of unique to Jesus. And as the people are listening, again, they're trying to figure out, okay, who is God and who is me? Which one's me, which one's God, all right? So you have all of these different workers going into this vineyard at all kinds of, of different times of the day with, with different understandings of what they're gonna receive at the end of the day. And again, Jesus is telling the story and he's taking it to extremes and the people are thinking, man, this is gonna be a disaster when it comes time to settling up with people at the end of the day. Uh, someone is going to have to sit down and figure out who came when and what was the agreement to pay you. 
Someone's thinking this is gonna be a payroll nightmare to figure out. So in verse eight again, Jesus continues to build the story, the parable with extremes. That evening, the landowner told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them beginning with the last workers first. In other words, start with those who worked the least amount of time. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. One hour, full day's wage. Now you're at the back of the line. You're seeing this. You're thinking there is a guy who got paid a full day's wage for one hour's work. What are you thinking as the last person in the line, the first one in the field at six o'clock in the morning? I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, holy smokes. If that guy got a full day's wage for one hour's work, I'm gonna get a full day's wage for each hour I worked. Hallelujah. Now here comes the disturbing, unfair, unsettling part of the story. When those hired first, the six o'clock people who have been out in that hot field all day came to get their pay, they assumed, I'm not gonna tell you what that means, but they assumed they would receive what? More. But they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested just as you and I would to the owner. These people only worked one hour and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the hot sun. Now, obviously there was a way to avoid this problem and that would have been pay those who had been there all day first, then they would have had no idea what the others, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is using this story to teach the multitudes something about the kingdom of God, the way God works, the way God sees things, the way God deals with people. And also by this point in the story, they pretty much have figured out who God is in the story and who they are in the story. And I say that because if you're trying to build a following, this isn't the way to do it. If you're trying to to build a movement and you're telling them this is the way God works, If you're trying to build a system that you want people to follow, this isn't the kind of stories you tell. Because what Jesus is doing here, what he's introducing, what he's talking about is so unfair, so disturbing, so unsettling. Who wants to be a part of this movement? Who wants to be a part of that church? This fictitious story Jesus is telling about God as a landowner is the opposite of everything these people listening to this story ever grew up with or ever experienced. This violated their meter of fairness. This isn't how you treat people. 
Yet it's the way Jesus chooses to begin to introduce and to unveil this new kingdom, this kingdom of God, this upside down counter-cultural kingdom of God. And are you ready? We haven't even gotten to the punchline. We haven't really even gotten to the gut kicker. It's coming. And Jesus is continuing to build the story, making it more and more and more extreme with each time. I mean, you think you're outraged now, fasten your seatbelt. Verse 13, the landowner who represents God responds to the workers and says, friends, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Here's your money, now go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Oh, we, have, we haven't gotten to the punchline yet. The, the kicker's coming. The next, the last line that Jesus says here will illuminate, it will bring clarity to just how unearned, how undeserved, and how unmerited you really believe the full-on grace of God should be. With this one last line, Jesus is gonna reveal our hypocrisy if there is any. He's gonna reveal our hypocrisy when it comes to the subject and the nature of grace. When you hear this next line, it will show you if there is any difference in the way you think God's grace should work in your life versus the life of people you don't like. Verse 15, should you be jealous because I am kind to others. Do you, do you have a right to be jealous? Do you have a right to despise me because of my kindness to others? Now, if you don't stop and take time to quietly, purposely reflect on this statement of Jesus, our natural human bent inclination will be to say, jealous? Why would I be jealous? I mean, that's so childish. That, that's so immature. And I'm a much bigger and a much better person than that. Why would I be jealous about you being kind to other people? I just happened to think I worked a lot longer and a lot harder than those other people, but hey. In this very moment, Jesus exposes every one of them as well as every one of us. He invites them just as he invites you and me to see the kingdom of God differently then we see the kingdoms of this world. To see the system that God values versus the system we have valued. To see people around us differently. To see God differently. 
to see our relationship to God differently, to see other people's relationship to God differently. Because whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, the kingdom of God is characterized by unsettling, disturbing, and oftentimes unfair generosity and kindness. Whether you like it or not, the kingdom of God is often characterized by unfair generosity and kindness. And through this parable, Jesus is asking them and he's asking you and I this question, can you handle that? Can you be okay with that? Will you participate in that? Are you willing to participate in a kingdom where the undeserving get what they don't deserve? Are you willing? Is that okay with you? Can you participate in that kind of a kingdom? Are you willing to participate in a kingdom? Are you willing to serve a God where people like Zacchaeus are treated better than they deserve? Would you be willing for others to receive the same kind of kindness and generosity from our Heavenly Father that has been extended to you because God has lavished upon each and every one of us the full-on grace of God when we did not deserve it. So would you be willing to be a part of and to participate in a kingdom like that? Would you be willing to serve a God who operates that way? Now listen to how Jesus ends the parable, and I'm, I'm getting ready to end here too. Verse 16, so those who are last now, that's the kingdom of this world. Those who are last now are gonna be first then in, in the kingdom of God. And those who are first will be last. And Jesus is just bringing in this extreme, extreme major paradigm shift between this world and the way it functions and the kingdom of God and the way it functions. When you and I begin to understand and embrace the kingdom of God, the way God thinks, the way God looks at things, the way God understands and deals with people, when you and I begin to understand the values of his kingdom, it is going to feel to us like the last are first and the first are last. It will feel unfair, unsettling, and disturbing because of how we have been raised in this culture to measure and to understand and to dispense fairness. How do we measure fairness? We compare to determine what is fair. We compare to determine what is fair. Grace doesn't compare. 
Grace doesn't compare because grace in Jesus is always, always, always married to, linked to truth. And the truth is, every one of us in this room, first starting with me, have sinned and fallen woefully short of God's glorious, righteous standard. Every one of us in this room, because of our sinful rebellion against God, stand in need of the full-on grace of God. And the good news is that has been offered. It has been extended. It has been purchased and given to each one of us. It is made available to every one of us through Jesus Christ alone. And what makes this such good news, I hope it is good news, is that no matter where you are, what you've done, what God offers to you and me, folks, it is fairer than fair. It is better than good. God's kingdom is available to everyone. And he is generous, he is kind, he is gracious, he is loving to the most undeserving. Everybody is invited into to participate in this kingdom regardless of your past. This is what Christmas is partly about This is why Jesus came, to open our eyes, to reveal to us what our heavenly Father, who he really is, what he's really like, and to usher in and to begin to see us, for us to see a new kingdom, a new way that God wants to move upon the earth. Will you participate? Will you embrace this kind of a kingdom, this kind of a God. Amen. Let's stand. God, I believe part of what you want to do here this morning again is just open our eyes, open our hearts here this morning, God, to be able again to receive truth at the deeper, the innermost parts of our being this morning, God, that we want to be transformed. We want to be honest. As I read this story, as I talk about this story, it just smacks of unfairness. And that's the point. It's really to show me my heart, to show me my attitude towards you, towards your kingdom, and towards your grace. And God, when we're honest about that, we put ourselves in a place where we can receive some amazing grace this morning, where it gives us an opportunity to be able to just repent of our attitudes, of our misunderstanding, our misapplication of your grace, not just in our lives, but more importantly, in the lives of others. So God, this morning, I just pray that you'll touch our hearts with more and more of that full-on grace of God that was so manifested, so perfected, so complete in your son, Jesus Christ, 
And God, what you did in him, you want to do in us this morning. And what he had was a willingness, a yieldedness, a surrendering to you. And God, if we'll just come this morning yielded, opened, and surrendered, God, I believe you will do that greater, that deeper, that much needed work of grace in our life this morning, God. That we can be beholders, experiencers of that grace, and then be dispensers of that grace as Jesus was. Lord, this is our heart's desire. This is what I believe you're calling us to individually and as a congregation of God. We wanna walk more and more in the fullness of that. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.